monsters and ghosts to otherworldly beings. Join the explorers as they venture into the darkest realm seeking the truth to what goes bump in the night. Good evening and welcome to Explorers, Seekers of the Truth, episode 29. I am, of course, Chad Charlesworth, and always I am joined by my best friend and co-host, Lesson Cabbage. How are you doing tonight, Les? Uh, good. Pretty good. Uh, well, it's good to hear, Squirt. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm a little confused over a post <laughs> on our sister site, the Sasquatch ATV research team. Uh <laughs> of a comment that was put on there but uh you know hey cleo good to see you we didn't see you last week we were wondering we're hoping you're okay good to see you back uh yeah had a comment (laughs) i was i i I was defined or or titled squirt by somebody and on and i guess in in rebuke to one of my my posts of one of their posts uh funny funny i don't know so i guess that's gonna be my (laughs) my name moving forward so Aside from that, uh, let's cover our usual part of the agenda here. You can reach us at our website, www.explorersgroup.com. Go on there, check it out, uh, see what we have out there. We have archive shows. We have some cool gear that uh, most of it we use personally. So you guys could go out there, check that out, buy some if you want. If not, don't bother. Um you could also find us on Twitter at Explorers Group and obviously here on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Explorers Group. Uh, we're on iTunes and Instagram and all those other fun places. So go and find us and check it out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, last week we were discussing a, you know, Rest Haven nursing home. And yeah, I had one of those moments when I was at work on Friday. And when I was driving home from work, I had to call Les and ask him what he thought of this. Because it was something I think we should have probably brought up during the show last week. It just never occurred to me when we were talking about this. And what what I'm referencing is we were discussing a place that was, you know, allegedly haunted. And, you know, several of the buildings where a lot of the activity had happened over the years have since been, you know, demolished and new structures built on the, you know, in those areas. And even some of it is, you know, just open field. And it kind of like popped in my head as I was, you know, at work. And I was like, what happens if a spirit now, you know, again, this is all, you know, subjective, but Mm -hmm. if a spirit is in like, we're going to use rest Haven because this was what really triggered it. If it was in the the building from 1912, I believe was the building that was demolished in yeah yeah 2004 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, if a spirit is in that building mm-hmm. and that building is no longer there, mm-hmm. um, what is like? My my question is, where does the spirit go? What does the spirit even realize that the building's no longer there? You know, is it attached to specific things like the the wood or the stone, and it goes then wherever that stone goes, or is it something like, oh, in that 
that dimension or realm, whatever you want to consider it, they're living in their time frame. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get into like the uh, residual hauntings, intelligent hauntings and stuff like that. I mean, an intelligent haunting would have, would in my thought process, and of course I, this is only my opinion, would have to have a concept of the current structure around it where residual haunting is just that replay of a moment in time so if the structure is no longer there you know where where does that energy go and and this is something i i would love anybody who has an opinion on this if you want you know shoot shoot your opinion down quick and, and you know put it on the instant feedback because i i i'm really kind of you know baffled at this not like i have my thoughts on it and i just want to kind of open it up and and see what some of the you know you guys that are listening think um and and again this is all subjective and nobody's Nobody has the right answer because, A, we can't even prove the existence of the paranormal yet. In the sense of science, we can't prove it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some anybody's ideas are more than welcome because, you know, this is kind of sad. And, and I've rolled it around in my head so many different ways. And um, I would love, you know, you guys and, and Les even because, you know, Les and I had a, a conversation about this, but it was kind of cut short because we were both, you know, traveling and doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anybody has an idea or a thought on this, just shoot a, you know, shoot it up on the message there. Um, also I want to clarify our friend Pat, who was nice enough to provide us with stories last week is still an awesome guy. I kind of <laughs> got a little flack for that. He is still a great guy, you know, uh-huh. yeah. he was sure. then, he is now. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Pat, if you, if you're, if you're listening, please, you know, accept that my apology for misspeaking on that subject. <laughs> So now Ricky says combination of time and space. Uh, can you elaborate more on that, Ricky? I know it's only you're just doing comments, but uh, I, I would say that um, supposedly we all have an energy, and uh, the and and so they say energy is never ending. That energy, once it's started, it's it it never ends. So if these souls are that were within the building and there were a lot of them, you know, based off of the stories that we heard from friends and family, once the building, just because the physical structure is no longer there, I'm pretty sure that the energy would still remain in some way, shape or form. Um, that's why I guess, you know, a lot of times when you hear different kind of ghost stories, you know, where there was at one time, excuse me, like, like a house that, you know, had a tragic thing and people said, oh yeah, it's haunted. This not the house is torn down. People still drive past and they might see the spirit of someone or something in the lot where the house was or strange activity would happen even, even at the neighboring houses and the neighboring properties. So does it transfer does it travel you know this energy and and is it still the same spirit you know what i mean does that energy then get absorbed or used by a different kind of entity you know Mm -hmm. 
whether you know evil or benign you know yeah. could it be a demon that attaches itself to that energy source and uses it to manifest yeah, see that's the thing and like cleo brings up an interesting point i've actually i i kind of know the story that she's referencing um you know there over the years there have been like plane crashes and they at times recycle some of those parts that aren't you know damaged like in plane crashes not necessarily like catastrophic plane crashes like yeah, sometimes yeah. you know planes skid off the runway two three people die in the crash and then they start you know you know using parts from that i mean it's it, it there are airplane junkyards the same as there are you know automobile junkyards mm -hmm. and they start you know salvaging the parts off there and they've had i know with like a lot of the airlines they don't allow their employees to talk about ghosts or hauntings on airplanes and stuff like that because you know people do actually bring up those stories and they kind of like oh well i don't know anything really about that i've never had any experiences and they kind of you know brush you off but people have reported i mean james dean's car you know that he had died in there there were stories about that there's you know you go to a junkyard you find tons of wrecked cars odds are sooner or later somebody had to have died in that car yeah you know especially with wrecked vehicles um you know, so yeah, you do get like, you know, there there's stories. It's almost like a spectral attachment. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like that one show that was kind of based on it. That what was it, Haunted Collector or something like that, where there were yeah. um, possessions that were supposedly haunted dolls, yeah. like Annabelle. You know, Annabelle. Uh, yeah. Little boxes that 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 were you know precious to the previous owner or, or many, many owners ago. Yeah. And you know, it just, it held that energy. And I think a lot of times, uh, depending on what the building was made out of, what the foundation was made out of, like if it had like a, you know, if under the building, uh, say there was a lot of limestone, supposedly mm -hmm. limestone is a good, uh, conductor of, uh, spirit energy or spirit activity. Um, Perhaps if you know it's it's the foundation that that's holding that energy and and or else creating that loop like that like you said about residual hauntings, mm -hmm. you know it keeps playing it back, um, or maybe the building itself, the the mineral that was used in in building the structure had something to do with it, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what I, I was thinking. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, I, I just happen to have one of the the plastic Easter eggs on my desk. Okay, I carry them around often too. So, say this penny is a spirit, okay, uh -huh. and we'll use the Easter egg as a house per se. So, uh -huh. it's inside the house, it's mm. inside a vessel, it's inside a containment, right? Now, all of a sudden, the house goes away. This would like with science you know if, if the house goes away the penny falls away right still a penny you know gravity pulls it to the ground mm -hmm. spirits don't necessarily work on that same you know scientific theory but 
it, it just, you know, certain structures, because you hear all these stories about, um, you know, buildings that were there mm -hmm. years and years ago that were knocked down and people, you know, stumble upon these, the house lost in time is like always that story of like, oh, they, they went looking for the house that tumbling run. Yeah. 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 We, I think we talked about that one before. Yeah. But say it again. Go Or do you want me to say it? <laughs> um, you know, there, there's a, a legendary, there was a, um, like a resort community for the people that are around me down here. It's kind of like Smith mountain lakes. It was built on a reservoir Mm -hmm. And back in the, you know, turn of the century, early 1900s, it was a very affluent resort community. Right. They eventually decided that as a reservoir, it couldn't have boats and people fishing in it and stuff like that. So this community shut down and they basically the foundations for a lot of the buildings are still kind of noticeable in some spots. But the houses and these hotels and stuff were, you know, knocked down and destroyed. And there is like a legend that people go out there looking and they find a um, a house that is, you know, basically what people think is it's modeled after the houses that were there in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. But they basically go in, they disappear, and they're never heard from again. And it's kind of like the house is almost like a spirit on its own. And, and it creates a vortex or whatever, you know, word you want to put in there that basically traps people inside of it and then disappears because the house isn't really there. Right. People are seeing almost a a spirit of a house as strange as that sounds or, or, yeah. or almost like a portal. Yeah. Like the house is the portal, you know, and, and, and a certain time of year or whatever, it comes back and, you know, the timing has to be right for this thing to come back. But, you know, th those are, what's the word I'm looking for? Like urban legend. That's like, I guess that's an urban legend of, you know, where we were. Cause I mean, who was the person that disappeared? You know, has anybody ever heard of who actually was the person that disappeared? We heard that people disappeared in it, but who were they? And were they really gone? Like, is there a record of these people, you mm -hmm. know, vanishing or, or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I'm Charlie trying to read. had a comment there. Yeah. He yeah, said, I, I believe a person's consciousness sticks around to one degree or another. If someone was attached to a particular place or object, then a part of their consciousness may be, may be attached to that as well. That says it perfectly. Mm -hmm. and I, I think yeah. that that is is a, an extremely great point right there. That it's not maybe not the spirit. It's the it's, well, I guess the consciousness could be the spirit or or what remains, the energy, you know, and it mm -hmm. does it, and it would attach to either the location or the home or the possession or something that has the tie to that energy source. Yeah. Well, that's like, and that actually kind of triggered Charlie's response there kind of triggered something in my head. If anybody's seen, there is a video that probably every other summer circulates on Facebook and it's, real ghost caught in Gettysburg 
Pittsburgh and it's the cannon alongside the road. And then all of a sudden you see what looks like two soldiers kind of on either side of the cannon. It's at night. So you can't really make it out that clear. And it, it can't be people because it would be a federal crime to be on that, you know, in that area at that time of night and and these people just randomly caught it on camera. Mm-hmm. Well, here, here's one of my problems with that whole scenario, and, and it kind of relates back to what we're talking about here. The cannons that are placed on the battlefield are not necessarily where the cannons would have been during the battle. Right. They would be close, you know, in a general, you know, most battlefields, they try to put stuff as close as possible to, you know, that time frame or at least a major part of that time frame, like Gettysburg being a three-day battle. Mm -hmm. Well, on day one, there wasn't cannons on that road. On day two and day three, there were. Even up until probably day four, there was, you know, Day four isn't part of the actual battle, but it would have been during the retreat. There may have been cannons in that area. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that also brings me back to the thing I made you look for me the other day was the um, ghost who corrected the big battlefield map in that, mm-hmm. that, that, that house in Gettysburg, where right, right. The husband had set up this big table diorama with like the little soldiers on it representing the different stages of the battle. And he came home and asked his wife, why is this moved? Why did you move this? And she's like, I don't touch that stuff. I don't I just vacuum in that room and dust. I don't touch your tables. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. So one day she's up there cleaning the husband had moved the the regiment back to where he had had it. And she basically said she saw a bright light come out of the wall and a, a man with a beard dressed in civil war era clothing steps through the wall, walks over to the table. Well, I, I think in the story, she says he's smoking a cigar and he's standing there with his hands, you know, folded over in front of him. He's looking and he's smoking his cigar and he moves the one set of soldiers back to where the husband found him that time. Years later, they actually found out through studying some of the regimental records that the placement of what is, was accepted history was incorrect. They were using you know paces and, and steps for measurement. And then they, you know, they were using a modern stride length and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, when you figured out how tall the officer was in command and stuff like that, it changed how far those distances were. And they were actually a good, you know, 10 or 15 yards to the left and up from where the records had them at that point. Mm-hmm. So there was an intelligence spirit acting in a house that not necessarily he you know, not necessarily that he died in mm-hmm. or that he had an he might have had an attachment to the house maybe it was offering him shelter and safety during the battle it might have been right. his headquarters but 
he interacted with modern, you know, you know, modern tables and stuff like that and could change it. So, you know, it just, it, it keeps like going back into that loop for me. Like if it's intelligent, it has to have some reference in modern day in, in its environment that it's occupying now because mm -hmm. it can affect things around it now. If it's residual, that's why people always say like, oh, I saw it come out of the wall and it you know, went through this doorway and disappeared. Well, in 1830, you know, that wall wasn't there. It was a hallway. Yeah. So it's basically just reenacting that moment in its life. But now all of a sudden, that wall wasn't there. It, it comes through the wall and disappears. So we added something to a structure and it still doesn't affect the residual haunting. Right. So removing the building, would that, would that affect it then? Like the whole structure being on? That's, that, that's why I was looking like and, and thinking about this and stuff like that. It just kind of goes into this loop for me where it's like, well, if it's this, it's this. And if it's that, it's that. And it, it could be this or it could be that. Yeah, I think the best the best solution. I think uh, we need to get up to Rest Haven, to the site of the old buildings, and we do our own investigation, see what we pick up, see if we pick up anything, and I wanna I wanna also go up to the cemetery, and uh, do a little bit up there too because think about the the story. Uh, I don't know if it was Drew or Pat, one of the two that said about they saw like a family in mourning go that up towards Pat. the cemetery. Well, why would it be the family? What a ta you know what I mean? Like, why would a family, a whole family, come back and and reenact that that moment? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, I would assume they didn't die during that uh progression, you mm -hmm. know. What would make a family come back? I mean, unless it was a family member that was so dear and important to them that maybe caused something bad afterwards. Maybe they died in a, a, a wreck when they were leaving there. I don't know. But what would bring, you know what I mean? That that what would cause that sort of spiritual energy to want to reenact itself? That just made me think of a movie I watched a couple of weeks ago. And this, of course, is I watch those horrible B paranormal movies. And you said about the family. Well, in this movie, the family was staying in the Winchester mansion. But it wasn't really the Winchester mansion. It was kind of like some old house made up to look like it. It was a very bad, like C-class paranormal movie. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the family had been dead the whole time. Is that the one with Nicole Kidman? The others? Isn't no, it the others? No, no, that that the others is another movie like that, but that wasn't supposed to be the Winchester Mansion. This was like called Winchester, the Winchester oh. House or something like that. Oh. Yeah, but the others is along the same lines as that. But yeah, that, that really has Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> Yeah, it was Squirt. <laughs> Thanks. Squirt. Thanks, turd. <laughs> so, you know, if anybody, you know, ponders the, the question that I posed there earlier and, you know, comes up with something or, or just 
you know, it triggers something in your head, please feel free to send it, you know, send us a message either or, or, or yeah, or if you were you and your group, if you are part of a group, if you had done any kind of uh, investigating or any kind of research into this same scenario, uh, PM us, get in touch with us, uh, let us know because th this is we we've been pondering this, and I was like, man, you know, of all the locations we've gone, well, I mean, even think about, I mean, in, in a way, Peach Mountain is kind of the same thing where the mm -hmm. house is burnt down, but you still go up there and flash the lights to have the spirit come out of the house but again every time we've gone up there nothing has ever happened mm -hmm. so we can't really confirm yay or nay is 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 the the does the soul remain mm -hmm. you know yeah i don't know well that's that's also like one of the things when we were at uh the daniel stewart that's why i keep saying to you i want to actually do like the field around the barn investigate that and, and do evps there and try to like put some audio stuff out there because that would have been the area where people would have been laying or something like that so yeah. you know that it, it, of course this is all subjective so you know but i i would just love to hear other people's opinions on it because you may shed some light on it or shed a uh, a new way of thinking for me to you know kind of wander down that wormhole and see where it goes <laughs> yeah yeah so well it's like it's like you said not 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 to cut you off but it's like you said it, it is so subjective you know what i mean and until things are i guess for lack of better terms scientifically concluded uh it'll still remain a mystery but i still say we hit up uh rest haven when you come back home and you know, we do our little we do our own research Oh, of course. I'm more than willing to, you know, go check it out and see what we come up with. Evidently, Darby's willing to go with us too. Yeah, she's, yeah, yeah. She's down. She's speaking up. Yeah. <laughs> um, stop it. Sorry, she's door's about to open. Uh, so tonight we wanted to talk about you know the famous Yeti. Mm -hmm. No, not the awesome overpriced coolers and cups <laughs> and, not, and not Les's favorite WCW wrestler, the Yeti. I didn't even like WCW. <laughs> okay. Squirt. Enough of your opinions. <laughs> Every time you have an opinion, we're out of here. <laughs> no, tonight we're going to discuss the legendary cryptid, you know, said to roam the high altitude of the Himalayas. We'll also kind of discuss some of the more famous Yeti expeditions and some of the cryptozoologists that have been involved. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to go back to what I would consider, you know, in my eyes, the last golden age of exploration mm -hmm. when people went out looking for the adventure of finding something like this and not mm -hmm. to get on TV and be TV famous, but to actually right. seek out the truth to these legends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, as you know, like Chad had said, tonight's topic, we're going to be discussing the Yeti and some of the hunts for the elusive creature. And uh, I guess first we'll, we'll kind of give a little bit of a breakdown as to uh, what it is before we get into the expedition. Well, are you okay? Is everything okay? Yeah. Really there's, evidently, there's evidently a photo shoot now going on with me, you know, since... 
I'm evidently so good looking and there has to be photos taken. <laughs> no doubt on that, brother. No doubt. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we'll, we'll, let's talk about what the Yeti is before we get into uh, some of the expeditions. And, and like Chad had said, some of the uh, early explorers uh, and, and naturalists and scientists that tried to go after and just really rich people that had a lot of time and money on their hands to go after this elusive creature. So much like its North American cousin, the Sasquatch, according to juniorbooks.com, I will read what they had to say about the Yeti, or also known as the Abominable Snowman. The Yeti is half-human, half-ape figure of legend among the Nepalese of the high Himalayas. And Nepalese mothers use the tradition of the Yeti to scare their disobedient children. The Yeti will get you if you don't watch out. You know, it was a popular warning amongst the Nepalese. Uh, in the folklore of Nepal, the Yeti or the abominable snowman, it was taller than the average human and is said to inhabit the Himalayan region of Nepal, Bhutan, and Tibet. Uh, the names Yeti or Meta are commonly used by the people indigenous to the region and are part of their history and mythology. Stories of the Yeti first emerged as a facet of Western popular culture in the 19th century. No one can say whether the Yeti is actually, whether it actually exists, but uh, the first appearance or the first apparent confirmation of its existence came with photographs of huge footprints in the snow taken by Eric Shipton. Um, hey, Kelly. Um, the Mountaineer in 1951. Few people claim to have seen the Yeti, and some believe to, to that it's invisible, which, you know, there's a lot of speculation of uh, what, do, what do they call it, Chad, when they disappear? Go, cloaking? Cloaking. Yeah, where they say that the, the Sasquatch cloaks, where it, it, it hides itself or, or could travel through uh, parallel dimensions or it's inter interdimensional or something. I'm not knocking anybody that has that theory. I don't subscribe to it, but you know, there's a lot of theories out there, which is and speaking of all the different theories, I guess that's how I was deemed squirt this, this, this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to tell you to just stop at that point, but <laughs> I figured, you know, you are a one man wrecking machine. You just keep going squirt and I will sit back and be the nice guy that I am. I'm going to squirt on on through the show here. And uh, <laughs> as I was saying, few people claim to have seen the Yeti and some believe it to be invisible. Like I said, skins, which the Nepalese say have been taken from the dead Yetis, more commonly turn out to be those of like goats or antelope or, or the Tibetan uh, blue bear, which is very rare. And, and the yak, the Tibetan yak that's up in, in that region. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat's drying out. Uh, tracks in the snow said to be the Yetis. Uh, footprints, the footprints have proved to be those of a snow leopard, a bear, a wolf, or a fox, which have melted and and the 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 shape had distorted or or enlarged due to snow melt, uh, which is pretty common. I mean, even uh, there were some deer tracks that people had found in my area the one time, and it looked literally like a bipedal trackway of humanoid footprints and after we got down into it uh and you really looked at the track 
Uh, and after one was casted, it was it was a deer hoof, clearly in the center of it, and each one following forward, uh, they all had the hoof in the center, so it was just a melt out, and it just the melt distorted, and it looked very very human esque and large. Um, but you know, hey, it's always good to try and find it, and then then to just brush it off. Uh, but anyways, yeah, so it melted from the larger to form a larger, more man-like track, like I was saying, uh, of the Yeti. Nevertheless, the legend lingers, and it may yet to be proved to have a basis in fact. The scientific community has generally regarded the Yeti as a legend, given the lack of evidence of its existence. In one genetic study, researchers matched DNA from hair samples found in the Himalaya with a prehistoric bear from the, uh, oh God, Pleistocene epic. Pleistocene. I think I said that. Pleistocene epoch. Epoch. Yeah. Um, the name "Abominable Snowman" was coined in 1921. The same year, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Charles Howard Burry led the 1921 British Mount Everest uh, reconnaissance expeditions, which he chronicled in Mount Everest, the reconnaissance in 1921. In the book, Howard Burry includes an account of crossing the. Oh God, I'm going to kill this. Lakpa La at 21,000 feet, 6,400 6, meters, where he found footprints that he believed were probably caused by a large loping gray wolf, which in the soft snow formed double tracks rather than those of a barefooted man. Uh, he adds that the Sherpa guides at once volunteered the tracks must be that of the wild man of the snows, which they gave the name Meta Kangmi. Meta translates to or as man bear and Kongmi translates as snowman confusion exists between Howard Burry's uh, uh, definition of the term meta Kongmi and the term used in Bill Tillman's book, Mount Everest, 1938, where Tillman had used the words Mech, which does not exist in the Tibetan language and Kingmi when relating to the coining of the term abominable snowman, further evidence of the Mech uh, being a, uh, misnomer is provided by the tibetan language authority professor david snellgrove from the school of oriental and african studies at the university of london this was like in 1956 who dismissed the word mech as impossible because the consonants tch cannot be conjoined in the tibetan language uh documentation suggests that the term mech kangmi is derived from one source from the night from 1921 that has been suggested that Mech is simply a misspelling of Meta. Uh, the use of Abominable Snowman began when Harry Newman, a longtime contributor to the Statesman in Calcutta, writing under the pen name Kim, interviewed the porters of the Everest Reconnaissance Expedition on the return to Darjeeling. Newman uh, translate, or mistranslated the word Meta as filthy, substituting the term Abominable perhaps out of the article or the out of artistic license. Um, as Bill Tillman recounts, uh, Newman wrote long after in a letter to the times, the whole story seems such a joyous creation. I sent it to one or two newspapers. So that's, that's about all I got for the breakdown of the Yeti. Yeah, Probably and, a little excessive, but you know, better yeah, have more well, information than not enough. Yeah. And one of the things is like, when they do have this mistranslation to filthy and stuff like that, and it becomes this, 
that's also somewhere along the lines of when the stories start to take on oh the creature had a smell yeah that yeah you know, and that's something you see in, in north america and in chinese and australian you know stories about the different bigfoot sasquatch like creatures is oh they have this smell mm-hmm. you know and then you talk to some people who say they have i witnessed these creatures and it's a 50 50 oh yes i remember a smell that smelled like rotten garbage and eggs you know rotten eggs mm-hmm. other people say no i i never noticed any kind of smell or anything that you know stuck out to me right. during you know traumatic experiences scents are one of the things that stick with us the longest oh, yeah. actually your sense of smell is your is your strongest uh link to memory mm-hmm. thank you squirt mm. Yes, no problem. Squirt's always here to help. Yep. But no, go ahead. Sorry, you, you can finish your, your point there. No, I was just, you know, it, it seems like there's a mistranslation that all of a sudden creates a new piece of folklore. Mm-hmm. Like it adds to this story of a, you know, what they consider man bear or snowman. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden now, oh, it smells. And then all of a sudden, all the other ones have to take on this characteristic of, oh, it smelled like this. Right, right. You know, how many people actually... Go ahead. How many people actually know what rotten eggs smells like? You know, that you'd be able to just, like, oh, it smelled like rotten eggs or a wet dog or wet dog would be a little easier. Yeah. But wet dog mixed with wet skunk mixed with rotten eggs. Well, you have a life if you know what all three of those kind of smell like mixed together. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, and true, like you were saying about the the uh, mistranslations and stuff like that, it's kind of like that game that you used to play in grade school where, you know, Whisper you're down t- the valley. What's that? Whisper down the valley. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where you're told something and you have to pass it along to maybe seven or eight kids in a line. And by the time it gets to the end, it's nothing near what you were told originally. Mm -hmm. You know, and especially, I mean, that's just kids sitting in a row. Imagine a story coming from halfway around the world by multiple different sources you know, everything's going to misconstrue. And then, and then you have the, the elaborations of people who all right. Well, like you were saying, like the whole Hollywood theory, better, faster, stronger, scarier, Mm -hmm. you know, Oh, well, if I'm going to take this home, I'm going to make this story even more elaborate to, to really, you know, either scare or thrill or entice people to want to believe me or, or, or gain interest in, you know, Mm -hmm. So all yeah. that adds to the subjecture, I think, to to a lot of a lot of the cryptid creatures that are out there. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and it, it just seems like if one of the sub you know subset of a, a cryptid mm-hmm. has this feature, then all of a sudden you notice an increase in the other subsets also having this feature starts to develop, and it, it, it's just interesting because as somebody who looks at history and stuff like that is kind of more interested in the history of the folklore sometimes more interested than the actual creatures. 
<laughs> it's interesting to see where that that moment in time that 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 part of the story becomes part of the legend right where it's right. not just oh they witnessed this they witnessed this all of a sudden it was like oh there's a mistranslation that becomes you know this word that gets you know as part of the name then all of a sudden the name leads to the oh well it had to have stunk because they call it this well i remember years and years and years ago that the abominable snowman the the the, the abominable the abomination was this horrid smell there he is look at how cute but you know what I mean? It, the, the abominable snowman was the smelly, hairy beast, you know, mm -hmm. of the snowy, uh, snowy caps of, of the Himalaya. But uh, yeah, so where where's the, the first expedition that we're, we're going to be going into? Let's see. Our first featured explorer and his work in cryptozoology and the furthering of science and understanding, uh, Thomas Baker Slick Jr., more commonly known as Tom Slick Jr., who was the focus of a biography written by Lauren Coleman in 1989 called The Tom Slick and Search for the Yeti. And all, all Tom Slick True Life Encounters in Cryptozoology. It's another one. Where is it? Which way am I going here? There. Good book. Good book to read. So, of course, it is Thursday. So we're going to have fun, th fun Fact Thursday. <laughs> Yeah. Tom Slick's mother was remarried to Tom Sr.'s business partner, Charles Urschel, who had actually been married to Tom Slick Sr.'s sister, who also had died young. He, Urschel, was actually kidnapped by Machine Gun Kelly and was held for nine days, and Kelly had received over 200000 in ransom for him. And mm -hmm. Kelly was actually the one who coined the term G-Man for the FBI. When he was arrested, when he surrendered to the federal agents, he said, don't shoot, G-Man. And that later stuck as what the FBI and stuff like that became known as in the 50s and stuff like that in those movies. Second fun fact about Tom Slick. Tom Slick's father was known as Dryhole Tom. <laughs> because of his bad luck at oil prospecting. Until well, of course, his, right, 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 right. Yeah. And, <laughs> until his, his big score in Oklahoma, which then he was known as the king of the wildcatters. Mm, so that I was did. Fun Fact Thursday. I hope you enjoyed. I did thoroughly, thoroughly. About old dry hole Tom. Uh, Tom Slick Jr. was born May 6, 1916. He was a San Antonio, Texas-based inventor, businessman, adventurer, and heir to an oil business. Slick Jr. went to Yale, and it was there that his interest in cryptozoology begins. In his book, Tom Slick, True Life Encounters in Cryptozoology, Lauren Coleman speculates that it was reading about the 1928 Roosevelt expedition that kind of bagged the first uh, giant panda in the 1920s that sparked Slick's lifelong search for undiscovered species. And one of S Slick's first field experiences was during a college trip to Europe where he took some time to visit Loch Ness, which, very lucky. Yeah, and one of the neat things about Slick was he actually poured his money into 
you know, scientific research. He actually started up the Southwest Research Institute, one of the biggest R&D focused science nonprofits in the country at the time. Um, on a smaller scale, he also started the Mind Science Foundation aimed at exploring uh, strange consciousness and mental powers. He had uh, become interested when he was in, traveling through India. He had met a man who could levitate and teleport himself. So, you know, as a rational American of the scientific 20th century, Slick thought that levitation, you know, could actually be used in construction work. And if we could, if he could figure out how to do this and harness this type of power and the teachings of it, it could actually become a big help in construction where less machinery would be needed, less fossil fuels would be needed to, you know, maneuver stuff around. And, yeah, that's pretty interesting that somebody... This is why I say it was the last golden age of like real exploration, because these were people who lived for the adventure of of doing this stuff. But also guys like him and Howard Hughes and stuff like that put their own money into developing, you know, different thought process and, and acceptance of different ideas of hey, if this guy can levitate, there's got to be a way that we can levitate this, you know, 1,200-pound stone and then teleport it, you know, from the job, you know, from the left side of the room to the right side of the room and put it in place. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Shit, if you could figure that out, God, you'd be rich. Well, I think that was his point. He did have even more money to enjoy. <laughs> expeditions, yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Th- I wish I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth to, to be able to go on wild adventures like this, you know, cause I would, I would love to rekindle that whole, uh, like you said, like the golden age of exp- exploration and expeditions and whatnot to, to go out to, to prove and find the truth, not just to go out and, you know, profit off it in, in a sense of other means, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but anyways, in 1956, that was the year slick got serious about, the abominable snowman or the Yeti in his year, earlier trips to India. He had stories about the eight man of the Himalayan mountains and, and to slick, you know, a man who had once driven to Arkansas to buy a barnyard freak called a, a hoat, seemingly half goat, half hog uh, that he had read about in the Ripley's believe it or not, uh, not comic. And then unsuccessfully attempted uh, to breed the monster with goats and hogs. This was too good to pass up. The New York Times in October 1956 ran an article about Slick in Nepal armed with bloodhounds and a helicopter, but the local government put a stop to his expedition demanding he be sponsored by an organization of uh, repute or the United States government. Um, This wasn't the only bureaucratic hassle Slick uh, would hit in uh, Nepal. In 1957, the government worried about his expeditions of bagging a Yeti uh, forbade foreigners from killing a Yeti. And in 1959, a State Department memo made uh, this the official position of the United States as well. So Slick got around to Paul's new rules by getting a letter of assignment from a San Antonio Zoological Society. He headed up into the mountains looking for any sign of the mythical beast. The trip bore some fruit, uh, but most of it was conceptual. 
after spending lots of time talking with the natives and showing them pictures of many sorts of animals, including art artistic renderings of uh, Australopithecus, um, which is a prehistoric human, uh, Slick came to the conclusion that there were two kinds of Yeti. One was about eight feet tall and black, while the other was smaller and reddish. Uh, again, the two common colors that are uh, often said of the Sasquatch in, in the United States and, well, in all over. Um, he also photographed and made casts of some prints on the ground as well as collected droppings and hair. Uh, but this was to be Slick's last trip to Nepal. While taking a bus up a steep mountainside, the vehicle lost its brakes and began careening downhill. Everybody bailed and Slick landed hard on his knees. The injury and the concerns of his mother, who was uh, probably still wound up from him crashing in the jungle just, you know, a year earlier, kept him home from then on. And he only funded future expeditions. He didn't physically go out on them anymore. Yeah, that's one of the neat things about people like Tom Slick was he actually crashed an airplane crash in South or, South or Central America and basically was in a plane crash made it to a village of like primitive somewhat primitive uh tribesmen lived with them for two weeks while surviving on parrot meat and then was rescued like those kind of guys are pretty badass in my book <laughs> you know like yes. i survived you know i survived a plane crash i hiked to a village where Good chance they probably killed me. Mm -hmm. uh, lived with them for two weeks, was accepted into their tribe, ate parrot meat, and finally somebody kind of found me. Then a year later, I'm in Nepal in the, you know, traveling around Nepal on some rickety bus with bad brakes. <laughs> and it goes careening down a mountain. Yeah. You bail out of it, still survive. Yeah. You know, in a foreign land. Oh, man. You're right. Like they, they, they epitomize badass. Yeah. Ugh. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, everybody always kind of talks about is the Pang Boche hand, which is an artifact that was in the Buddhist monastery in Nepal. And, you know, people had contended that the hand is that of a Yeti and scientifically, un, you know, recognized animal, you know, purported to live in the Himalayan mountains. Now, the expedition in 1958, you know, had turned up some interesting artifacts in the Tibetan lamasteries, which I believe is like the lama, they're, they're like monks and, and monk stories, if I'm not mistaken on the translation. Um, the group photographed the supposed Yeti scalp that were was kept as a relic. Um and as well as this hand, the hand was uh, debunked by Slick himself, but the group came across another more intriguing artifact, a um, another mummified hand, something that was much harder to fake. Mm -hmm. um, the mummified hand, because like a hand, you know, people die, they cut off a hand, they put it in a box and say that's a hand of a Yeti. Mm -hmm. Okay. A mummified hand would have, you know, a process and stuff like that. So it'd be a little harder 
you know, you would be able to find traces of chemicals used to do the mummification. Right. So you'd also be able to find a little more of the bone structure and stuff like that. If it was a human hand, be a little bit easier to figure out. So this is where, you know, the, the legendary story of um, Jimmy Stewart smuggling the hand. Well, actually, his him and his wife smuggling the hand out of um, Nepal in her garment, uh, her underwear. Her negligee bag. Her negligee bag, yeah. yeah. Because back at that time, they wouldn't search a married woman's bags especially but her unmentionables would be strictly forbidden to be searched mm -hmm. right so you know that's where that kind of story comes up you know it's basically you know tom slick turns to hollywood for help you know the the last exp expedition had been co-funded by another wealthy texan kirk johnson johnson in turn was a good friend with big game and, and a good friend and big game hunting partner of Jimmy Stewart. Yes, the actor, of course, Jimmy Stewart. Mm -hmm. You know, Slick asked Stewart to help him get, you know, get a hold of the evidence from the mummified hand, which was in the monastery. And then Slick, one of Slick's men, stole the thumb bone and, and phallus of the hand, replaced it with human bone, and then the supposed Yeti parts were given to Stewart, who smuggled them out of the country. Now, years ago, the, you know, techniques of analyzing the bone structures and stuff like that and, you know, different pieces were, you know, ruled inconclusive with, you know, a lot of people thinking that it may have been the hand that had belonged to a Neanderthal. Um, you know, later, as science progressed, that was debunked. Um you know, it's one of those things where it, it becomes debunked based on the facts that the examiners were looking at mutilated relics with hoax parts in it. You know, so it's common when, you know, when you see a dinosaur in a, a museum, sometimes they have to create a bone that they couldn't find and put it in to this otherwise you know complete dinosaur statue or um bone display what are they right. called <laughs> skeleton said, yeah skeleton yeah but the display has a certain name for it uh, I, I don't know <laughs> but you know so some of these parts were hoaxed and that's also where you know you start to look at okay the hoaxed parts were they parts of a human hand that, you know, they kind of fit into place, you know, to make the bone structure bigger. Uh, the TV show, if you guys remember Unsolved Mysteries, did an analysis on some of the tissue on the hand and came up, of course, comes up inconclusive. Now, that was back in the 80s. So you're looking at, you know, some improvements in science from the first examination, but still not the, you know, big leaps that we've had in the last, from the, the 80s into the 90s, 2000s to current. Um, so, you know, one of the things was this story doesn't actually come out 
that they stole the hand until the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was kind of kept secret, which also then kind of gets you thinking like if they stole the hand, they had the hand, they were doing testing on the hand. Why keep it secret? Right. You know, after a certain point, you know, like I could understand not going on national news the day after you stole the hand and returned to America and go, Oh, look, we have their hand. <laughs> we stole it. We stole it. Cause you're probably not going to have the same reception when you get back to Nepal. Yeah, you know, right. next time you do an expedition, but now on uh 27th December 2011, you know, it was announced that the fingers belonged to the hand. You know, basically the hand was a human hand. The DNA basically all comes back as human, which, mm-hmm. you know, the doctor who had tested Dr. Ogden commented, we have got a very, very strong match to a number of existing reference sequences on human DNA databases. Mm-hmm. Human was what we were expecting and human is what we got. That again, that's one of those things like depending on which side of the whole Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Yeti, you know, thing you debate. fall. Yeah. I mean, well, we found human. We were it almost it's like we were expecting human. So therefore we only looked for close enough matches to human sequences and exact matches. Well, you know, there are different, you know, if you look at certain pieces of our DNA compared to certain pieces of other primates and stuff like that, there are sequences that match. Right. You know, so that always, if, if I was going to cover up the existence of a creature like this, I would make sure the DNA showed up to be human, you know, or a bear or something that we've been telling you it is for years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes stuff like that kind of triggers in my, you know, detective mind. Well, if you were expecting human, you already had a predetermined idea of what you were, you're going to find. Right. So, right. Was there chances that samples weren't handled properly? Well, there's always that chance, but you kind of you kind of put a statement out there, and then I kind of look at it and go, "Well, you're now giving me your motive for this, you know, what you found on this test. So you've already kind of tipped your hand to saying you were going to make sure this was coming out the way you thought it was coming out, right?" Yeah, I mean, if if you you're right, if you're if you're if you're looking for something and you want it to be something, you're going to find that something. You yeah, know? but I think it's. But, that, I mean, if you're looking for, if you're looking for horses, you're going to see horses. But the people who are truly finding things are looking for giraffes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm not sure yeah. how that goes. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I get it. I get what you're saying. Um, well, and, and it's funny too, because a lot of the other, uh, samples that are submitted throughout the United States or from the United States to, uh, different, uh, DNA database labs, it always comes back either unknown primate or unknown human. Mm-hmm. 
well, I mean, I, we're still of the primate primate uh, family tree, uh, and it, it always makes me scratch my head because it's like, all right, well, obviously, if you're getting hair from somewhere, I mean, unless these people, you know, lifted it from a zoo or something like that. But if these people are out in the woods and it is honest to goodness, you know, found in the forest and it comes back unknown primate, but we, we can't say it's a Bigfoot. Well, of course you can't say it's a Bigfoot because no Bigfoot has been found. No Bigfoot body has been able to be studied and, 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 you know, DNA hasn't been extracted in order to categorize it. So if it's coming back unknown primate or unknown human or something like that, well, isn't that confirmation? I th- it, it, it's it's a step to confirmation. It's not enough um, to confirm its existence, but it is on the road to confirmation. Like I guess it's kind of like all right. Well, we we don't have we don't have we can't match it to anything. So it's an unknown primate. So until the day we have the body to identify it, it's it's unknown. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like, if it comes back unknown primate or unknown human and has certain human hair characteristics or you know primate hair characteristics, but it's unknown. Yeah. Well, then you almost have to say, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. Mm-hmm. But now you have something that walks like a duck, flies like a pigeon, mm-hmm. and barks like a dog. Yeah. So you have something out there, clearly, because the. The these samples are coming and are not completely identifiable. We're putting right. it in a family, but we're not putting it to a specific creature, animal, right. anything. So you're one of the thing one of the things that make me kind of wonder is they, they they're getting all these unknown primate, unknown primate, unknown primate. Are they taking those unknown primate finds? And storing that information so that way every time they get a unknown primate, are they the same? Like, is it the same genus? You know what I mean? Like, if you say, all right, well, I took samples from 50, let's just say 50 50, uh, Kodiak brown bears, right? Mm -hmm. And you can say, all right, well, all these samples have a, a, a almost apples to apples DNA structure. So you know it's it's a Kodiak brown bear, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're taking all these quote unknown primate samples, wouldn't you think scientifically and logically that you should be taking these samples and creating a database on them so that way any other future <clears throat> excuse me, any other future um samples that come in and they're like, okay, well, this is coming up unknown primate, and it matches identically to this find that was in Washington, but this one was found in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, you know there, I mean? almost, there almost has to be a lost and found for this unknown primate DNA. Exactly, because, I mean, if, if that's how it's going to really start building a stronger 
um, push for the scientific community to really go out there and make a more wholehearted effort to do research and try and find this creature. Because yeah. if you're getting all these samples that are, are continuously coming back the same breakdown and the same uh, DNA code, well, obviously there's there's truly is something out there that that warrants further investigation. Well, what I don't what would to me would instantly warrant further investigation is the fact that in Washington state, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in in these different areas, Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, British Columbia, they're the fact that they're getting hair samples that are coming up unknown primate. Mm-hmm. We yeah. don't short of us, there are and zoo animals, there are mm-hmm. no other primates in North America. Yeah. And you have so many uh sightings and 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 reports throughout the United States and, and all well really all of North America and all over the world for that matter. But I mean let's keep it to North America. You have so many reports all around the US and Canada. All over. You can't tell me that it's escaped zoo animals in every one of those areas. Well, the fact, no, because that's the other thing. If it's a zoo animal, it's not an unknown primate. Exactly. They would have already having a a category sequenced for an orangutan, for a chimpanzee, for a gorilla. Exactly. Um, Exactly. So they couldn't come back and say unknown. Yeah, there would have to already be a uh, uh, a sequence. A basis. Yeah. Yeah. Even for that one gorilla, or um, there's an orangutan, orangutan in Waco Zoo that was a crossbreed mm-hmm. of like two different types of orangutan. I guess I'm not very good on primates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they guess accidentally crossbred it and then it had like they have this offspring and it is the cutest thing in the world it's huge like it's not huge huge but it's it's a big orangutan and it is just the cutest thing to sit and stare at and it'll look at you and it has that almost human quality to it <laughs> uh, but you know that they have a D, dna sequence for that Mm-hmm. You know, this, this crossbred, you know, creature. So that's not even going to come up as unknown. Um, but to answer, I, I saw something on instant feedback here. Uh, Ricky, I do actually believe they have returned the bones they took. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. They did return them a few years ago. But it's like, it's Nepal. They, what are they going to do? <laughs> Well, I, it was getting harder and harder for people to go up there and get any kind of information out of them because every, they were being robbed. You know, I think even the, I, I think even the Yeti, the Yeti supposedly Yeti skull cap, which ended up after testing, it ended up being the the height of uh, like a goat or a yak or something like that, like a um, a zero goat or something like that, yeah, which is a yeah. goat in that area, which you know isn't surprising. But uh, they weren't letting anybody in to look at anything because after the testing, like, oh, no, they're trying to say that it, it was a goat, but we know it was a Yeti. And, oh, they, people are stealing the hand. We don't want to show anybody because now it's literally under lock and key. Um, I think I think they put it, they returned it in good out of good faith to kind of ensure future expeditions because 
you know, the, the Nepalese government and whatnot weren't letting people up there for a while. So. Yeah, I mean, it's. Whatever government it is. Yeah, well, it, it, Nepal. Is it China yeah. or is it? Uh, China is in control of Tibet. Um, I don't, I guess Nepal is its own government from what I remember. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but uh-huh. now one of the interesting things, like we were talking about like Tom Slick and stuff like that after his injuries and stuff like that, he actually turned his attention to the American Yeti, the Sasquatch. Yeah. And, you know, he led field expeditions himself in the Pacific Northwest and discovered many tracks and, and had made many casting. Uh, one of the unfortunate things is his notes from the period have gone missing and they were probably destroyed by his family, you know, around the time of his death, mm-hmm. which is odd because he was kind of known for doing this stuff in a way and, and kind of being that maverick out there adventurer, you know, to destroy his notes, you know, I, I kind of find that odd. I think the notes may be out there. I just don't maybe think the family wanted them released to the general public for some reason, be it Mm -hmm. that there was some kind of idea of, you know, future profit from them you know, they're a wealthy family, you know, oil and stuff like that. They were, you know, shrewd business people. So, yeah. you know, if, if his notes are out there, I would, I would hope they'd be released in book form and, you know, be available yeah, for all of us to look at. Yeah, that'd be great. He also um, had to do with the funding of, you know, the search for the Orang Pendex in Sumatra. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of people call uh, Littlefoot. It's mm-hmm. uh, the, I guess, the Hobbit form of of the Bigfoot. We talked a little bit about that in one of our previous shows, which I would love, love to get Adam Davies on the show and, and talk about his time out in Sumatra looking for uh, the Orang Pendek. That's something I'm, I'm trying to work on. See if I can get him on the show. He would be great to talk to because he actually was in Nepal. Uh, he he went on a few expeditions out there looking for the Yeti. And I think he was there at the same time Josh Gates was out there looking for the Yeti. Hmm. Both out there with, with uh, networks, I believe. Uh, one was Monster Quest and the other was Destination Truth. And then Gates went back again with uh, Expedition Unknown. But we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, one of the things um, with the Orang Pendek, if you don't mind me, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The recent ex- archaeological discoveries in the area have shed interesting light on the Orang Pendek, a previously unknown species of, of humans called Homo florensis, which we talked a little bit about in one of our past shows, nicknamed the Hobbits, uh, were living in the Indonesian uh, archipelago uh, as recently Ar- as archipelago. What- Ar- that's what i said yeah archipelago okay, <laughs> okay. okay Scott. Right. <laughs> right uh as recently as twelve thousand years ago so i mean think about that i mean in the grand scheme of time twelve thousand years is not that long ago for you know especially in the sense of evolution 
Well, and just in like human, you know, interaction with its environment, that's not that crazy of a number. Right, right. You, know, you say dinosaurs, no, makes... you know, 65 million, you know, dinosaurs being 65 million years ago, like <laughs> say 12,000 years, that kind of it's a drop kind in the bucket. Yeah, it seems very, very small amount of time. Mm -hmm. But these small bipedal uh, bipeds probably look like an awful lot like the Orion Pendek, uh, who has been seen for hundreds of years. Um, but aren't aren't there pygmy tribes in Sumatra? I'm pretty sure there's the the the, the uh, Indonesian pygmies and and Sumatran pygmy tribes. Yeah, you know who Could I'd love to ask. Huh? I was going to say, you know who I'd love to have asked about this? My grandfather, who was there. I, you know, yeah, he, yeah. He's all over the Pacific, so he would have known. But what were you saying now? No, I was just saying, could could they be uh, descendants of these hobbits? Because they, they, they kind of fit the bill, height and size. I guess honestly, anything's possible. Yeah. In, in that sense, I mean, you know, there's proof that you know Neanderthal and stuff like that bred outside of their lines and, and stuff like that. So, could a Hobbit and an early Homo sapien have had some freaky deaky <laughs> little people? action of course yeah i guess it's it's, it's not a far-fetched theory because you're right i mean homo sapiens had interbred with the neanderthal and supposedly we all have at least two percent neanderthal dna within us yeah, so, some people yeah. some people i think it's even higher like close to the 70 percent or something like that their right. lines i'm out of water <clears throat> now, one of the things I found interesting, like with some of the stuff you were reading earlier, <clears throat> was when Slick actually went to Nepal, uh, his, his original intent was to actually kill the Yeti, kind of along the lines of like Roosevelt had done with the giant panda and stuff like that. You know, but he, you know, over time began to kind of realize the animal deserved to live just as much as any human did. Mm -hmm. And by the time he was searching for Bigfoot, he was more interested in capturing photographs than actually killing, you know, a Bigfoot. Right. And, you know, that's kind of interesting because you go from this. You know, because there is that constant debate, kill, no kill, you know, right. back and forth argument with people. And, and, you know, he starts out with the whole, well, I'm going to go shoot one of these, get it down off the mountain, present it, you know, to science and say, look, here is the Eddie. You know, classify it now. It, it's, it's proven mm -hmm. to you know, years of searching for something to just look at it and, and to think like, you know, he's never claimed to have actually seen, you know, had an actual encounter with one that, but his, you know, his thought process changed to, 
oh, I just kind of want to get a picture so to show people and say, here you go. Here, Here's the proof I'm going to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think that's interesting when you see somebody, you know, kind of start out down that road of I'm going to kill one, I'm going to stuff it, I'm going to, you know, have it in my, you know, big game trophy room to – yeah, I'm just going to take a photo of it and kind of wave to it and walk on by. And that's the, you know, mm-hmm. the end all be all for what I want in, in this situation. Yeah, it, it is kind of an extreme. Uh, but then again, you know what I mean? People go through uh, life changes and whatnot and their mm-hmm. their perspective and views on things change, you know, depending on life-changing events you know i mean the dude's been in how many accidents and whatnot i mean that could be enough to kind of clear your conscience and kind of be like you know what i don't want to do that you know what i mean so i don't know what else do we have uh just trying to think if there's anything else you know with the slick expeditions or anything like that that you know pop up in my head but now, you know, you said about life-changing events and stuff like that. I mean, the man lived through one plane crash, a bus, a bus crash, and then in 1962 actually dies uh, in a plane crash in Montana mm. on his way to hunt in Canada. And some say it was possibly searching for Sasquatch. Uh, he was 46 when he died, and... You know, when he died, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, his dad died young, his aunt evidently died young, he died young. Um, You know, his his cryptozoological efforts, you know, basically died with him at that point. You know, even his science foundations got a little less paranormal and became more conventional in its, you know, research and stuff like that. So it, it, you kind of lost a great you know you know a great person in that sense like we lost somebody who you know nowadays his you know institutions may have continued funding research and stuff like that and maybe if he doesn't die in 62 the amount of money for research would have been so good that some you know, higher end science and stuff like that would have gotten involved and they may have proven it by now. Mm-hmm. You know, they may actually have one or two that they could bring in and, and you know, observe and, and put in, in not a zoo to like stare at, but like some observation areas and stuff like that and just kind of get an idea what it really is and, and how it communicates and stuff like that right kind of sad that he died like that <laughs> yeah it is it is i i i i'd be interested it'd be interesting to, to think about how far i mean with with the the fortune the dude was sitting on you know what i mean with that kind of financial backing not not uh tainted by corporations or or networks or you know what i mean to be able to be that self-funded who knows what he could have found out I mean, really, the possibilities were endless. He could have gotten a, a really great team of, you know, scientific minds and, and really gone deep into the middle of nowhere 
and done a lot of research, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or perhaps he would have, you know, had engineers come up with some kind of new tool or new, you know, device to help track or find, or, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah. I mean, would have been great. Even, even on the paranormal, like investigative side of it, you know, the technology that would be available, you know, from somebody like, you know, one of his, you know, research development companies, you know, there, there may be some really good evidence on that, you know, end of it, even, you know, just that somebody could, you know, give somebody a grant that allows them to work on, you know, specific projects, you know, dealing with frequency and light and different ideas like that, Mm -hmm. where, you know, they could actually spend that time working on stuff and actually create possibly the thing that would prove the existence of different things. Right. Right. So we talked a lot about, uh, Tom slick, the Tom slick expedition. I mean, I think that holds a lot of, uh, really holds a lot of weight in the whole Yeti story, really. I mean, because without that, there really isn't much going on. I mean, if you move into more modern times, uh, there have been other, uh, for like, I guess, researchers, whatever you want to call them, uh, that have gone out there in search of this mythological creature. Now this we'll talk a little bit about it later, but this is where it gets a little bit muddy in my opinion. And again, this is just my opinion. You could say what you want. Call me squirt. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, Or why uh, do you, squirt, why do you say this is just my opinion? You know, that's when you get yourself in trouble, right? Am I squirting myself up for, uh, for controversy here? Um, but no, my, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about this, this later, but, uh, anybody who is familiar, um, anybody who's familiar with the TV show destination truth and, and I am not knocking it quite honestly, that was probably one of my favorite, uh, I guess, paranormal or, or cryptid related shows. I, I loved it. Uh, I thought it, I mean, it was, it was Hollywood, but still it was really cool. You know what I mean? I, I liked where they went. I, 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 you know, some of their techniques were, were, were neat, but Josh Gates was the host of destination truth. Um, and according to destination truth.wikia.com, uh, I'll kind of read verbatim of their write-up of basically the episode uh, where Josh and his team had gone to Nepal to look for the Yeti and they had a decent write-up on there. And uh, I'll, like I said, I'm going to read verbatim what they had. Uh, so it kind of builds up the, the episode. So this is, this is kind of what happened. <laughs> yeah, Josh. Um, <clears throat> in Los Angeles, Josh Gates assembles his team to head to the Far East to investigate the Yeti sightings that have been recorded for more than a thousand years. I don't know how true that is, but I, I'm, I'm assuming the legend has been around a long time. 
he chooses to bring along Casey Brad and our Araceli, or I don't know what the hell the name is. They pack their gear for their flight to Nepal. After passing customs, they meet with Dr. Shrestha or Shrestha, whatever, the senior scientist for the Animal Health Research Division, who explains his suspicions that the Yeti is a once extinct species that may have reemerged. Based on reports and recommendations, Josh decides to investigate a valley where the most sightings have occurred. Abroad, a cramped 30-year-old prop plane, uh, or aboard a cramped 30-year-old prop plane, they head to the village of Lukla and begin their four-day trek into the Himalayas. The most eventful part of the day is, of day one is the sighting of a distant cow in the hills. On day two, near Macha, they find a retired Sherpa guide who has who was an eyewitness to a Yeti sighting. He directs him three miles to the west. That night, Josh leads. And again, there, there's an interesting thing. When you're talking to these Sherpa people, do they really want you there? Do they really want, you know, people like you and I out there snooping around their villages and their their land and whatnot, looking for a, a creature that most of the, the uh, cultures there regard as sacred or fear you know uh, a lot of the, a lot of those people are superstitious and they a lot of people think if you disturb the yeti it'll attack their village it'll attack their livestock you know what i mean so are they going to say oh yeah go three miles that way you're going to find it or are they are they just bullshitting yeah i well i think that goes back to my old follow the money they make money by taking tourists and climbers and stuff like that through these areas right but are they do they real i mean they're not stupid people i mean they may not be technologically advanced as we are but they're not stupid they know that if they're going to give away the cow they're not going to make money off the milk yeah so why take the people to the place where they can find what they're looking for and they're not going to they're not going to continue to get paid to carry all their shit out in the middle of nowhere because once one person has seen one, everybody wants to see one. And I can't direct you in the wrong direction because if I direct enough people in the wrong direction, nobody's ever going to come back. Because, yeah. you know, it, think about it like um, Tom, he's a, a fishing boat captain and hunting, you know, was a hunting guide and stuff like that. Uh, if Tom took people, to an area where they never saw a deer or bear or, or found fish. Somebody would say, Hey, I'm thinking about booking a, a crew, you know, a fishing charter up in that area. What was that guy that you went with? Oh, well, don't go with him. We didn't catch anything. True. The, and there, there's a Eric Cooper brought up a good point. A true Bigfooter isn't going to take others to their hotspots. I mean, that, that, that's kind of, kind of to my point is you know are they gonna hide i i I see where you're coming from like the more you get like if it's a fishing commodity you know like well if i'm catching a lot of fish i'm gonna go to the place that catches all the fish you know but what if it it what if that the the let's just say one of the guides is 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 a local native and his family relies on that well, I'm not going to take everybody to the spot where they're going to they're going to drain the fish population. You know, we'll take them to a place where they'll catch a couple, just keep them happy. You know, it's like you got these uh, every now and again you get a report trickling in just to keep the the interest. 
but nobody actually ever finds. You know what I'm saying? Nobody's ever at the actual spot where it happened or, or you know, do are they misleading things just to kind of keep them coming? There's just a little bit of interest, but we're not going to take you to where it actually happens because, again, like I said, a lot of those people are highly superstitious. Yeah, but you're also talking about an animal that isn't going to be in the same spot every day. It's right. going to be in the same area. So if I take you to an area where I say I had a sighting and when we go there, I'm going to tell you the story of what happened. Well, it's not a guarantee you're going to see one. But now you're going to tell your friend, like in this case, it's a television show. They probably got 1.1 to 1.5 million viewers on its first run, plus what it's done in syndication and online and stuff like that. So they're probably just a commercial for say 5 million people to come Mm -hmm. to this area of Nepal and try to find, you know, Lohi, the Sherpa and get him to give you an idea of where to look. Cause these people can't tell you exactly where they are. If they knew exactly where they were, they would say, I guarantee you for $20 million, I can prove the existence of a, a Yeti. Okay, I'll, I'll, we got $20 million. You go, you go prove it. Okay, come, come here, come here. He's right over there. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's there every day at this time. He comes down for lunch at noon. He's, he sits right there. Look, he's right there. Mm-hmm. Give me my 20 million. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I guess there's all, all different kind of ways to speculate, but. You know, no, there's no speculation. I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm gonna get back to the to the story here. Uh, Let's see, where was I at? Day two, direction through. Okay, that night, Josh leads his team into the tree-filled hills, despite the sub-zero temperatures. They find a cave that has some sort of animal droppings by its entrance, but its interior is devoid of life. On day three, the thin air at 11,000 feet above sea level begins to slow the hikers. Dawa, the Sherpa, takes them to a monastery that is said to have a Yeti head on display, which we already talked about. Upon arrival, the party is welcomed, but their cameras are not. A monk threatens to throw a stone at Brad if he tries to bring the camera inside. That night, a mysterious woman comes to the team and says she will help speak on their behalf. Sure enough, the council of four leaders approves their their entreaties and the team is permitted entrance to the monastery with their cameras. Ooh, big surprise. Uh, let's see within a metal case is a glass enclosure that holds what might be a Yeti scalp. One of the elders explains they don the cap to perform ceremonies to ward off evil. Again, part of the superstitions Brad asks for a single hair to perform DNA testing, but it's rebuffed. Yeti or not, they're told. The people believe the artifact to be significant, and that should suffice for proof. And again, back in the 50s, when they, the one expedition was out there, they took samples of that. That's how they found out it was the goat. And again, they're probably going to be like, no, 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 no. We already had this tested. It came back as fake. We're not going to go through this again. You know, oh, they but have why, their belief. But why would they do that? Oh, because if people were 100% sure it was fake nobody would ever come back 
<laughs> well, it was already proven fake. Yeah, but if we allow you to test it again, it's two strikes. And if we test it a third time and it's a third strike, then people go, eh, I have no reason to go to Nepal. I know somebody that actually went to school in Nepal. And from the stories, they tell me, yes, beautiful area, stuff like that. No reason to really go to Nepal. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and again, and Ricky is, is says basically what we're going to be getting at at the end of this. Uh, it's entertainment. You know what I mean? Especially with, with the the new explorers, the TV explorers. You're making you a TV new explorers. No, 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 not oh. not us. Uh, but or or you know what I mean? These people, they're they're they have a show. They they need to the the networks need to make money. They need mm-hmm. to make it entertaining. So you know, even like you can't come in with the cat. All of it. You know what I mean? It's all entertainment. It's all wow factor shit. Um, but anyways, let's see. Da, 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 da. Day four finds the hikers at a river within the valley. That night they split up and begin hunting. A moving hotspot is picked up by the thermal camera, but the contact is too brief to be definitive. Closer to the water, a Sherpa tall finds a footprint. Josh is thrilled beyond belief when one perfect and two partial footprints are found in close proximity. He summons Casey and Brad to quickly bring the casting powder. They take impressions just before the evening mist turns into rain. Despite the wet weather, Josh has them fan out on both sides of the river to try and find additional evidence. They repeat the process at daybreak, but find nothing conclusive. A helicopter retrieves Josh and his team and whisks them back to the airport. Much to Josh's surprise, word of his discovery has gotten out. And he's besieged by the international media. The discovery has made worldwide headlines. Josh brings the three castings to Los Angeles. And the first thing he and his teammates do to review all of their recordings. Casey says he has enhanced and studied the thermal images, but the moving hotspot can be identified only as something organic. A more definitive finding won't be possible. Uh, Josh then heads to the University of Idaho, where he meets Dr. Jeff Meldrum, a renowned expert in footprints. He's impressed with the castings and has a three-dimensional laser scan made. The partial heel is just about a perfect match for the full footprint. And the doctor rules out the likelihood that these were uh, plants by someone perpetuating a hoax. Given the distance between impressions, he reasons the creature that made this was well over six feet tall and weighed between 300 and 400 pounds. He also rules out the prints belonging to a bear because of the differences in markings and toe shape. He then shows Josh how similar this footprint casting is to one of unknown origins taken in in the Pacific Northwest, possibly made by a Sasquatch. Meldrum considers Josh's evidence a significant discovery, which delights Josh. Again, it's fucking TV, or it's a TV show. I need a beep, a bleep button. Oh, you know what I mean? You don't need a dump button. Yeah, a dump button. I need a dump button. I can't do a show without a dump button. I do one every week without one. <laughs> um, but I, you know, that, I just saw a comment Ricky posted. That was something that we were kind of talking about before we went live was it is great scenery and location, but there's little research and, and time in the field in those areas. But there is so little information 
that has trickled down. Like when you start really looking for Yeti information, you get a few snippets here and there. But I mean, a lot of the stuff, you know, I was looking at was coming from, you know, back in the Tom Slick era and even earlier. I mean, yes, Josh Gates had, you know, just been there within the last couple of years and stuff like that. But, you know, that's TV. That's the entertainment investigation. It's not the real, you know, investigation. Not not knocking Josh in any sense of it. I, I actually do enjoy his shows and stuff like that. So I don't, you know, want to seem like, oh, they're knocking Josh because he has TV. No, he's actually an enjoyable presenter. Um, I did like a lot of the stuff that they were doing on their show. And, I, you know, they just got picked up for another season, I believe, mm-hmm. of the TV show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's no, it's no knock or no disrespect towards Josh. I, I, as an entertainer, I find him very entertaining. But, but the, the the problem is, if what he found was was real, because of the platform he's on, I can't believe it. it yeah, I mean, it would have to have a lot of verification from other sources that aren't mm-hmm. TV famous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I love ghost adventures of all the paranormal shows out there. I love ghost adventures that I, I, I think what they, their show is very entertaining, mm-hmm. but again, can I, can I believe that what they're finding is, is true? No, because it's it's a made for TV entertaining show. Mm-hmm. So that that alone erases credibility in my point. And finding Bigfoot, I'm not even going to get onto that. Like that that <laughs> I take nothing from that show seriously. You know, it's it is pure, and it, it's it's more of a comedy to me than anything. The way that that show is produced, and, and again, I'm not. I, I, I those people as individuals may be uh, very dedicated and very serious researchers. I'm not knocking them individually, but the way that show is produced is comical. You yeah, know what I've, I mean? And I think I've watched one episode, and I t- Twitter talked with the girl that's on the show mm-hmm. one time. Because she had posted about it in search of and stuff like, yeah, you know, watching the original in search of, and that's, you know, it was in like a big Twitter chain, and she had like liked and replied to the comment and stuff like that. That was the extent of my knowledge of that <laughs> show. Um, I just I saw like one episode, maybe part of one episode, and it. It didn't thrill me. It looked like they tried to slap four personalities together and tried to, you know, make it into something more than it was. Right. But I don't know. The point point to all this is Josh's uh, find could could very well be legit. But again, being that it's a made-for-TV uh, means of entertainment, I, I I can't buy it. You know, uh, and, and it's unfortunate because 
I really think that, like you were saying before, that golden era of of explorers, the golden age of explorers and and and, and expeditions, if you will. It, it's it's so so kind of tainted by this new media means of of expeditions that i don't know i i would love to see something like this the slick expedition and stuff like that you know uh come back again not not televised you know what i mean just send a group out there and, and let them really do the research and see what happens you know i don't know yeah, I, I think that's the whole thing. Like, it is, you know, you have to do something entertaining to stay on TV. You have to, you know, you have to fit a time frame. You have to, you know, you have to have the Q rating and, and your your Nielsen ratings and stuff like that have to be around this and that. Right. You know, you, you've got to do the interesting topics. Yeah. You know, you can't just have a passion for a specific. You have to go, you know, look at all the, the paranormal shows and stuff like that. I mean, they've all beaten down the same doors, mm-hmm. you know, the same couple of locations. But then all of a sudden you start looking and they're like, well, we have to go to Romania, do a you know, four week shoot in Romania and get three episodes out of it to say we've done something somebody else hasn't done yet. Yeah. You know, and, and but it, it's, it's entertainment and that's, you know, I mean, it's kind of what we do this for is to kind yeah. of entertain people. Well, entertain and, and, and educate, I think it is, is, is more, you know, not saying that everything, on our shows is 100% fact tried and true. Cause I mean, none of this is, you know what I mean? There still is no definitive proof of any of the, the topics that we talk about, you know, cryptids, paranormal and all that stuff. But we try and provide to the best of our knowledge, what, what could be the most best case scenario, you know, yeah, we try put to them all on the table. Them. Yeah. You put them all on the table and kind of weed through the crap and, try and find you know the gem amongst the 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 junk but uh but i think crystal had uh posted that they're limited on time and and not long enough in in the location that, that's that's true too like that's that's what i was saying before is you need that old school exploration where they're out there for months at a time you know living in the locations and 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 setting up camps in the in the remotest you know, areas, not just, okay, well, we're going to spend a week here and, you know, day one, two, you know, three out of the five days that you're there spent traveling to the location. You know, you're not, you're not really at the location, you know, for a few days, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it would be interesting to see somebody do real research mm-hmm. uh, you know actual research and you know if it is not necessarily like a tv show but 
more or less like um, access to webcams, mm -hmm. you know, like and see the different steps in actual investigations and, and see what they're doing. You know, maybe it's not like minute by minute, but like you could get briefings and kind of see the work being done as they were going. Eric posted, uh, come to the North Cascades in Washington state. You will have an encounter. I would love to, is that where you live? I'm assuming I, I would, if, if I could swing it and you, you could get me to a location or get us to a location, Eric, dude, I, I will book the flight and be out there as soon as humanly possible. I, it's my dream to, to, to go to the Pacific Northwest. I mean, to me, that's, that's the home of, of Sasquatch. That's, that's kind of where it all started, where it all began. And to me, that's, that's, that's the epicenter. And I would love to go out there and not for some sort of a conference or an event or, a, you know, I, I want to go with other researchers and really get in the thick of it and, and, and do research. I don't want to go out there to, to, promote a book or promote this or pro promote. I want to go out and research. That's what I want to do. I want to look for the creature that I, I'm trying to seek the truth on. So you have Bigfoot knocking on your back backyard, huh? Yeah. I dude, if I could swing it, I'd be out there. I really, and Ricky podcast from the field. Yeah. We're, we're, we've tossed around the idea of certain locations doing a live show but we're just trying to figure out how we could uh, rig the camera systems to communicate with our hosting app. And so hopefully this summer we will have a live, uh, a live investigation and you will see how many times I fall asleep during investigations. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Actually, if you look on our Twitter, there's a little, snippet of less sleeping on an investigation uh yeah yeah we actually we try to do some live feeds while we're out doing stuff um you know sometimes wi-fi is not the greatest in some areas especially with doing like you know sasquatch research and stuff like that getting out in the mountains and stuff sometimes it's a little hard to do even doing the paranormal end of it you get in some places like we were legitimately down the street from three mile island on yeah. one of our last investigations and yep, we had uh nuclear uh, radioactive hamburgers and chicken wings before our investigation i think that's what did me in i was so sick that entire week and we had an entire weekend planned out for investigating we did the haldeman mansion what chad was talking about right down from three mile island then we went down into gettysburg and i i was so sick for everyone for every one of those uh investigations oh it was horrible great time mind you because i was with you know my my best friend and one of our one of our other friends and uh it was i i wouldn't i wouldn't take i wouldn't you know i'd do it again if i could but i can't wait to go when i'm not sick <laughs> yeah it would be nice if you weren't sick <laughs> or sleeping <laughs> squirt squirt yeah 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 i guess it really lives up to that name <laughs> but anyway do we have anything else for tonight's topic because now we're, we're we're kind of rambling and i don't want to draw this out if i don't have to um there was one story that i had kind of read that was interesting 
and I can't recall which book I found it in. It's probably still sitting in my car. Um, which book did I say earlier today that I was reading? Oh, God, I don't remember. Sasquatch. Something Ape Man. Sorry, I have like two... <clears throat> have like two bigfoot books and it's one of the two uh but there was a there's a story in there about william knight who was you know riding through this the sikkim area and he had stopped to give his horse a rest and had sat down you know along this road in, in a heavily forest mountain area and basically his story just went along that he had heard a slight sound look and saw about 20 paces away from a figure that I now suppose must have been the hairy man that the Tibetans call Yo Yeti. <clears throat> and he, you know, basically his description of this creature is it was a little under six foot tall, almost stark naked and bitter cold. It was, you know, of course, the month of November. And he was a pale yellow all over. And now this is from the 1800s. He says, you know, about the color of a Chinaman. Um, shock, you know, matted hair on his head, little hair on his face. Um, his feet were splayed and large, and he had formidable hands. His muscular development in his arms, thighs, legs, back, and chest was terrific. Uh, this guy kind of sounds like he kind of you know, it was sweet on this thing, but, you know, he had in his hands, he had some form of primitive bow. Mm -hmm. He said this went on for about five or six minutes. And, you know, he, he could tell that the creature didn't see him, but he saw that the creature was watching something down the hillside. And basically after a little bit, the thing started off and, you know, ran down the hill. And he was actually impressed by the speed at which the, the creature was traveling. Now, the author of that book had basically pointed out that, oh, you know, people are, are kicked out of their, you know, families and their, their villages for having disabilities and, and mental issues. And this most likely <clears throat> was a, you know, somebody that was kicked out of their village and, you know, most people that have that happen do die off, but, you know, some do eke out an existence. And I was kind of thinking about it, like, November in the mountains, um, not exactly a great time to be completely naked or <laughs> close to naked. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... And it also triggered something that was kind of interesting. A lot of the stories of the trackways being found in, and sightings of the Yeti seem to occur around November. Or yeah. the tracks are found in, in and about November. So it kind of seemed interesting that November might be a migratory time for them. If, if they do oh. migrate again, this is another theory that could be you know, argued Dude. for years. Dude, uh when we talked about uh my experiences on the old farm it started in november went yeah. straight through the cold months that to me they i i i noticed more activity during the colder months than i did during uh the summer months 
I and 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 I'm wondering. Uh, I don't think they hibernate. You know, I I honestly think that they are moving throughout the winter foraging. Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, if they hibernate, to me, it would be some form of bear. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Because only really, I there, there's no other primate that hibernates to my to my knowledge. Yeah, I can't think of any. I mean, I may I'm not again an expert in primatology, but I've never really heard of any that you know hibernate for any extended periods of time. I agree with Eric. I, he says they don't hibernate, they follow the food. And I agree with that 100%. Because I don't know if you heard our show before, Eric, on uh, it's called Squatch on the Farm. It was what, three episodes ago? I think something like that, like three episodes ago. Wasn't that last episode? I had lived on a property, huh? Wasn't it the last episode? No. Our last episode was Paranormal Experiences. Oh, so it was the one before that. Yeah, I think so. It was like two or three episodes ago. But okay, anyway, it's on our website. You can find it on our website. <laughs> um, Kelly, I don't think it was November. It was in the dead of winter when those college students went out uh, hiking and 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 whatnot, and and were supposedly tracked and killed by a yeti. And like the last picture they took on their camera was of some humanesque creature, bipedal creature, kind of peeking out of the wood lines uh behind them on on the trailway uh there's a lot that goes on with that i mean that that's a rabbit hole if i've ever heard of one with that whole story there's just so much that's related to that but uh that i think was in january oh eric well thanks you thank you for approving our show i appreciate it and go go back and and listen to that and uh, I have a sister site um, or a sister page called the Sasquatch ATV Research Team. We have a lot of stuff posted on there that's in relation to that show's topic. Um, I lived on a farm. It was on 150 private acres, just a few minutes from where I'm living now, the same town. Uh, a lot of things happened. I'm not saying it's Bigfoot, but a lot of things happened that I couldn't explain and if you listen to that show and you go to our sister page and look at some of the stuff we have posted there, if you have all these encounters that you're claiming you do, maybe you could kind of help shed some light on my situation. So if you don't mind messaging me and giving me some feedback and some insight as to things that you experience, I'd greatly appreciate that. But let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, Crystal said she heard they were killed by. There's a lot of different theories that they were, or how they were killed and whatnot. But yeah, it's, it is a, a really cool story. But anyways, uh, we're diverting here. Um, anything else topic wise? I think we pretty much covered all the notes. Yeah, I believe so. All right. Well, if you're if you're cool with with uh, wrapping up, I'm cool with it too. I want to go in. I'm getting tired. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good. I just got so. a message from Leslie. I got to get the kids up in their bed. So, Aww. yeah, got a daddy duties. Got to got to kick in. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'd like to thank my co-host Les, you know, for doing such a great show tonight. And I'd like to thank everybody in the audience for you know chiming in and helping out. Mm -hmm. Great participation you know, tonight, everybody. 
Yeah, you guys get an A for effort and participation. Yes, you do. Gold stars for everyone. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody as well. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Like we always say, uh, if it were one person or one million people listening, we do the show regardless because this is the only time Chad and I get to really hang out since he moved down to Virginia. But the fact that you all tune in and, and you participate and, uh, you know, interact with us, it, it's, it's awesome. So thank you all. We do this for you all. Uh, thank you so much. And um, uh, let's, uh, and before we go, Jennifer, any Arkansas sightings? I think on YouTube there's Arkansas Sasquatch or something like that, a dude who has some videos of stuff that happens in Arkansas. And you could go to the BFRO. Uh, org, I believe um, they have sightings all over the United States or even just simply Bigfoot sightings, uh, Google Bigfoot sightings in Arkansas and see what comes up. I, I don't know of any in particular, but there are ways to find out. Um, like I said, big BFRO.org. I think it is. If you just Google search BFRO, it should pop up. It's pretty popular since moneymaker started that and he was on finding Bigfoot. Um, yeah, there's there's ways, and like I said, just Google Bigfoot sightings in Arkansas, and you'll probably find a buttload, and there's probably more than you realize. So uh, yeah, thank you all again for tuning in. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you could find out. Um, yeah, yeah, not them. You can find us on our website www.explorersgroup.com. We're on Twitter at Explorers Group. And on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash or backslash whatever explorers group. And we're on Instagram and iTunes and all those other social media places. So check us all out. But other than that, good night, everybody. And we'll catch you next week. Good night.